Um, God's wrath in the Bible is still what we're working on, and we have finished. I'm going to review the different sections just to give us continuity. Um, we looked at texts on page one of God's wrath as giving people the results of their choice or hiding his face. Uh, sometimes it's God giving people what they want, as he, as he does when he gives Moses what he wants at the burning bush. Uh, and then uh, we looked at instructive passages on page three. These are passages where in the contextually it, wrath has a different modality than it does what we traditionally think of God's anger behaving. So we looked at how does God kill and what happens when his wrath burns. And we spent considerable time on Exodus 32 when God asked Moses to let him alone. Uh, and just for the sake of review and, and for Alex and Caitlin's sake, we concluded that this this God saying, step aside, let me alone so that I can get angry and destroy these people and make of you a great nation, is a parody of an angry God motif. Because why would Moses standing in front of God keep him from getting angry? I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, uh, especially given the kind of rage you have in the ancient Near East. <laughs> so that is how I see that. And then moving on. That lasted through page 4 and into page 5. But on page 5, we looked at divine wrath as possibly autonomous or metaphorical for consequences of international strife. And this is especially where uh, wrath is used apart from God. I mean, it's not God's wrath now. It's just wrath. Wrath fell upon Israel and, and that sort of thing. Then last time, we talked about human anger and the references, some of the references in the Bible to human anger where... It seems that human anger is frowned on in the in the Hebrew Bible. And this is in contrast to the ancient Near East, particularly Mesopotamia, where human beings could get angry. And with, uh, they weren't to get angry at one another, but they could get, uh, kings could get angry at nations and, and go out and, and destroy them or, or bring them to heal. And that was not reprisable. But what we have is human beings in the Bible... It's it's really kind of frowned on. Anger is kind of frowned on, and and angry kings uh, are are understood and accepted, but it isn't extolled. Angry kings aren't extolled for their anger. So now we're coming to the difficult stories. Having looked at all of this, we're going to see if we can apply divine the the principles we've learned so far to these difficult stories and what that will net us. And we did numbers, uh, no, we did the story last week. I'm trying to think what it was. Uh, it's not on, it's not on our document, but we did a, we did one of the problem stories last week. I think it's in numbers, number 16, Coradathan and Abiram, I think is what we did. No, it was the golden calf. That was it. Yes, it was the golden calf and Moses telling the Levites who, who stepped over on the Lord's side, go out and kill your brothers. And then he says, once they did, did that, he said, now you have ordained yourself to the priesthood at the cost of your brothers. I mean, it sounds terrible yeah. uh, to us. So 
what I suggested, I, I tried to walk you, rewalk you through that story and suggested that Moses sees God as angry when God says, step aside that I may destroy them. And he responds according to how he sees God at that point. And as God's man, God is going to support that and uphold that. And he does it under inspiration, I think an inspiration that motivated him to do something about the situation, but not necessarily intended him to be the one to do the slaughtering. Uh, because the, the text says that a plague broke out from the Lord. It seems that, that God wanted to be the one to take care of this. Now, of course, uh, that requires some interpretation too, but we're going to hold off on that for a later time. So let's look at page 7 and Numbers 25. This is a favorite story that people who believe that it's time to, how should I put it? It is time to discipline God's people and punish them for their sins. Like to use as an, as the reason, as justification for this. And, uh, so what I would like you to do is get out your Bibles. This is, no, this is Numbers 25. I know, I kinda, you kind of want to skip over that. It's like a whole block of type and doesn't look like it's part of it. <laughs> okay, Numbers 25 and starting with verse 3. And why don't we take turns reading as we do again. Well, maybe, let's, let's start with verse 1. I think that might be better. And Alex, why don't you start with verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim... And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Who invited them to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before those gods. Israel became attached to the to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry at the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord, in order that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you shall kill any of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses, Phinehas, uh, Eliezer's son, and Aaron, the priest's grandson, has turned back my rage toward the Israelites because he was jealous for me among you. I didn't consume the Israelites due to my jealousy. Therefore say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for his descendants after him. A covenant of perpetual priesthood, 
because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. I think we'll finish and stop with that. So what do you do with this? I'll tell you I'll tell you a story built on this one. This happened I believe in 2011 or tw- was it 2010 somewhere around there. It was 2011. Uh, Elder Wilson, the president of the General Conference, came to Redlands, California, to talk to the retirees. I suppose he was there for other reasons as well, but he, he did talk to the retirees. They had a meeting in the Redlands Church, and there was a man that present who didn't fit the image of a retiree. He was too young uh, to be a retiree who was quite agitated, and he, in the Q&A that followed Elder Wilson's presentation, he, he spoke vigorously against the liberals in his church who were ruining the church and destroying it and begged Elder Wilson to do something about it, and Elder Wilson said, well, if you will to give me some specifics, then I can look into it. So afterwards, uh, Jared Wright who is a pastor in Southeastern California Conference and who uh, writes for Spectrum quite regularly. He doesn't write as much recently, but he used to write a lot. Um, he decided to interview this guy. Uh, he thought it would make some interesting reading for Spectrum readers. So he took his laptop, he had the recording device on, and he approached him and he said, uh, <clears throat> Can I, may I talk to you? And he said, I'm Jared Wright, uh, pastor in Southeastern California Conference, and I write for Spectrum Magazine. And the guy says, you're part of the problem. And he says, I should beat you up. Like, look at what Phineas did. I should beat you up. I really should. And he slugged him in the mouth and split his lip. Yes. And about that time, the woman who was with this man ushered him out and into a car, so nobody got his license, nobody got who he was, uh, and they disappeared into the day. <laughs> so, so there you have a, a real-life scenario of using this text and applying it across the board. Now, it's true, he didn't kill Jared, right, thankfully. Um, <laughs> But, but violence, it was violent, what he did. And this, this uh, raises, really raises the question about this text. What do we do with it? How do we deal, deal with it? And this is one place where exegesis will shed some light on the text. And I believe in exegesis. But it's not adequate to deal with the implications of the text. And particularly uh, if you ignore the larger narrative context and the larger canonical context, uh, we're especially not able to adequately deal with it. So what, what clues do you have just from reading the story that might help us? I mean, it feels like appeasement. Is that what turn back my rage means? You know, sometimes, you know, you get the stories of, you know, 
uh, kids running out into the middle of the street and the parents shouting at them and being very angry with them. Why would you do that? Or, you know, when a kid runs away and they come back, the, you know, the mother screams at the kid, you know, how, how could you do that to me? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening here. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a, a nice kind of a blood butterfly band-aid effect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on a on a rather large, difficult problem that, I mean, somebody die, two people die here, and it's there's there's a, yes, and and um, I just I know that a lot of people uh, within my religious community would probably explain it like that. Um, yes, as in like we have you know a parent who is righteously angry trying to keep his children from doing or continuing something evil. That parent doesn't kill his children, though. No. (laughs) (laughs) And to me, that's where that way of dealing with it breaks down. Mm. It makes us feel better about the story, but at the cost of a bit of rational thinking, I think. In verse 4, the Lord says to Moses, Take all the leaders of those people... Kill them before the Lord set the Lord's fierce anger may turn away. And then Moses said to Israel's judges, "Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal." So, I mean, did just the leaders do that, or did Moses say everybody when God only said the leaders? I'm I'm trying to find this again. <laughs> Verse four, verses four and five. Yeah, I, I'm I missed the chapter. That's just what I noticed. Well, I don't know. Look, looking at that context, there obviously we're not. We now, this is this is very interesting. You you pointed out something. Take all the leaders of the people and kill them on behalf of the Lord in broad daylight. And Moses says to the to Israel's leaders, his officials, each of you kill your men who are attached to the ball of Pope Peor. He doesn't follow exactly what God says here. So what do we do with that? Well, I mean, it's. <laughs> It's no secret that humans often mistranslate what God says, but even in this case, we still have a problem. Yeah. Because it's the the words that we're using to translate what God is saying still. <laughs> it's it's a difficult passage, particularly in light of God's anger in it, because because God's anger. I, we've been talking about places where God's anger is letting people have their own choice, and now we're we're administering force. Um. <laughs> um, what word is used for jealousy that's used in this story? It's it's jealousy as in marital jealousy. It is, and and that is very appropriate here because they are they are going after other gods, which the prophets always declare is is marital unfaithfulness to Yahweh, because Yahweh's covenant, according to the prophets, is not a suzerain vassal treaty like it seems to be in Deuteronomy and even Exodus. It is a marital covenant. And it's meant to be intimate and faithful and loyal uh, and trustworthy. And uh, when Israel worships other gods, they're being untrustworthy and, and immoral. I think what I find most disturbing is the fact that it, it sounds like God's like justice is somehow offended and it needs satisfaction by the deaths of, mm-hmm. like appeasement by the people. And suddenly after the deaths have occurred, oh, okay, you know, God's good. He can then... This Keep is going. one of the few stories in the Bible that has that yeah. element in it. One of the few. Uh, this is not, you can't make an overriding, overwhelming case for that, with all the stories. If you put the, all the stories end to end, God usually takes action himself. This is a time when the people are made to take action. 
And one has to ask the question, why would in this case they have to take action, the people have to take action instead of God? Maybe if we can sort through that, we come closer to an answer. Because you think, think back on it. Nadab and Abihu drop dead in the temple floor. No one kills them. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram get swallowed up and, and fire breaks out and prince, uh, burns the 250 princes. Later on, Uzzah dies when touching the ark. So most of the time when these things occur, God is, seems to be the one handling the situation. But here, he asks the people to. And why is that the case? Jonathan? Um, I know sometimes, like we talk about inspiration being through the language of the people at the time. And at the end, they said there, it said there was a plague that killed 24,000 people. So, before, in, in the story of Mount Sinai, we've assumed that that's the, the consequences of their, of their immorality. And it seems that God was still planning. Right. So maybe, I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything to support it in here, but what if it's, uh, the author's interpretation of, of, events? of what happened, and maybe it's—it's kind of a weak argument. But if if the killing that started well, between the Israelites, well, you certainly have a conf- somewhat confused text. Um, if you look at it, God says one thing, Moses does another, says another thing, and then there's this plague. So there, you have three. It's sort of like God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart and his own heart. Now, which way are we going to take it? <laughs> One thing that I just noticed: you were talking about uh, the covenant between God and His people being spoken in terms of a marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any connection here between how the Israelites would have perceived that versus Israelites having illicit sex with a Moabite woman? Well, you know, this is this is a very thorny, thorny question to the scholars of the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, and and the reason is uh, it used to be understood that sexual immorality, uh, sexual promiscuity, was a part of of Canaanite and Mesopotamian religions that they had their temple prostitutes and and people went aside and, and engaged in sex as part of the religion. That has been attempted to be debunked by ancient Near Eastern scholars. There's an entire book written on it called The Myth of Sacred Prostitution. And what seems, what the authors, who is Stephanie Boudin, uh, maintains is that you do not have any evidence of sex for sale in Mesopotamia, which is true. If you study economic temp- temple economic texts, which we have scads and scads of them, um, if, if you look at all those ex- economic texts, we have we have scads of them, and not one of them talks about any money going to Ishtar or any money going to Shamash or Enlil or any other deity as a result of the Naditus, which have been understood to be possibly the prostitutes, and and so on. And so the term that has been commonly translated as pros- temple prostitute or cultic prostitute uh, no longer is thought to mean that. By by a, a large number of scholars. However, there's some veiled references to something going on, because Ishtar is the goddess of all of these temple women 
like the Naditus, and I'm, I'm forgetting some of the terms here. She is their goddess, and she sits at the alehouse waiting for customers. Why does she wait for customers? And what does that imply? And there's other veiled references to this. And no one that I know of has ever ruled out the possibility of ritual sex. Just not sex for sale now, just simply ritual sex. And the Bible seems to really claim that ritual sex took place. And in fact, uh, the famous story, you remember, of Tamar, Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, who dresses up like a prostitute. Uh, one part has, she dresses up like a Kedeshah, Kedesh, I should say Kedeshah. And that is Kadishtu in, in Babylonian. And that was another form of temple women. It's paralleled with Zona, which is the common word for uh, prostitute, just a common prostitute. So there seems to be biblical, rather strong evidence of ritual sex in, in Canaanite religions in the Bible. We do have one plaque in which there is an explicit sexual scene on an altar, and, and they claim it's not an altar, altar, it's a wall. It was found in the Temple of Ishtar, and, and most people who claim that about it won't admit where they found it. <laughs> But they found it in the temple of Ishtar, and it's an explicit scene of a man penetrating a woman. The woman is on the altar. Now, what picture does that give you of how women were being treated? It's, it's pretty horrible, really. So that's possibly the background behind this story. And, and this is, the next thing they're going to be doing is offering their children as sacrifices to appease their deities. So you're dealing already, because the Moabites did that, Midianites did that, Canaanites did that. Uh, so you're already, the people are already downriver in this scenario of religious violence, cultic violence. And where is God going to take them? Just whack them? They don't get the connection here. What gives them the connection is they having to participate in dealing with this. And how are they going to deal with it? They have to deal with it on their own terms. Appeasement. They're into appeasement in, is, is my perspective here. And, and God has to d- help them deal with it on their own terms. Okay, I'm blazing mad and you better appease me. It's, you, you would, we would love for him to deal with it in some other way. Uh, a nicer way, a kinder way, more like Jesus in the New Testament. <laughs> but if he were to deal with it like Jesus in the New Testament, would he get a hearing? So you're suggesting then that this is kind of like cultural language that God is speaking. It's what I call major voice. I don't. Were you here last year when I started introducing the major and minor voice of the Old Testament? I don't remember it if you did. I probably didn't do it much. So what, raise your question again. So talking about like God speaking in terms of the right, culture that they understand. What I have come to conclude is that there are two voices in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly. What I call the minor voice of God's preferred will and the major voice of his will adapted to the will of the people. 
And this is decidedly major, major voice. <laughs> mm. um, God is, is really stooping low here to meet these people where they are. The alternative to this reading of the story is to assume that God is just like the pagan gods. That Yahweh is no different from Baal. He's no different from Marduk. He's no different from Ishtar. He's all, he's the same. Um, and, and in that, I totally disagree. The fact that this is the, one of the few stories that has this element in it of appeasement suggests to me that God is having to talk to them in their language very decidedly. So, so this is the only way at the time that he could communicate that. The only the, way he could get through to the seriousness of what you're doing. Okay, you have to appease me now. You think you're appeasing them. Uh, it's possible that sex was used as a kind of sacrifice of atonement. We don't know for sure. Uh, ritual texts only tell you what to do. And they never, we have no ritual sexual texts. And that, of course, weakens my argument. But I don't believe the biblical writers would be talking about something that wasn't familiar. I don't think they would have invented this out of thin air. Any more than a child who's been molested invented her story. So that's what I see going on in the text. Is there any possibility, too, that some of the variances within these old texts like Numbers could be a fragmented like redaction from later time periods. It is possible. Yeah, I, and we can't we can't hypothesize exactly who did what, when, where. Right. You know, um, that's that's one of the reasons why I reject uh, the documentary hypothesis is because it tries to do that and it puts the Bible in such a straitjacket that you have all kinds of problems, and then everybody has their own belief system in it, and it becomes so unwieldy and impossible that. It, a lot of scholars just give up and say, forget it. <laughs> Let's not use it anymore. Uh, what's the scholarly voice on authorship for numbers? It's usually considered priestly, but there's there's other voices. There There's voices in here that that don't sound the same as other texts that are also priestly. So, yeah, you're dealing, I think you're dealing with with a text that is, it isn't coherent, it isn't, you don't have a straightforward reading. Now, maybe somebody ingeniously could make a straightforward reading out of it, and, and we just, we have, but in terms of what God's intention is, the plague that follows this, what do you suppose that plague might be? Is it something God imposed on them, or what, what could it be? STD. Absolutely. Natural consequences of messing around. It, it seems to me that that's, that's what we're dealing with. And it's, a, it's going out of control. It's like a fire out of control. How do you, you have to do some control burning? That's kind of what I th- see happening here. And since we're already in a mode of violence, in a mode of appeasement, in a mode of, of anger, angry gods, God plays that role very nicely in order to bring them back far enough so that they can sit down now, let's have a calm discussion and find out what I really want and what I'm really about. I guess one more thing that might take take a little more sting out of this is like 
it seems like in Old Testament, the numbers are often really inflated. Like, was it really 24,000? That's a very fair yeah, question I mean, to ask. Um, you understand that in very old Hebrew, the term thousand, the term thousand referred to contingents. It was, it wasn't thousand, it was contingent. And as, as the numbers of Israel grew, it came to mean one thousand. But originally it meant a contingent of maybe twelve, maybe, maybe eighteen, maybe twenty-four people. So what you have is twenty-four contingents. Not necessarily twenty-four thousand people. I forget the commentator that I read it. I think it was the commentator on Joshua and the Anchor Bible that worked that out. And I found it, I found it very, very helpful because otherwise the numbers are boggling and they don't make sense. Um, and, and so, yeah, maybe not as many people as we have in our Bibles, uh, were actually, actually died. Any more insights or questions about this passage? This is, this is the hardest one in numbers. It really is. What I found interesting is that God asked um, Moses to kill the leaders and perhaps that there's a difference because God knew that there would be the natural consequences to the people with the plague, but the leaders have responsibility for the people and they might not have faced that responsibility head on. I think, yeah, I think your your point is very well taken. The leaders are responsible, and especially in a tribal community like this. Uh, your leaders, in the house of the father construct of, of the ancient Near East, the leaders were to be obeyed they were to it was very hierarchical and uh so the the leaders would be your would be your clan leaders your tribal and clan leaders uh, and there would be a lot of them so yeah okay this might be completely out of field here but is there any relationship between the fact that it was like a sexual sin and the fact that God wanted them like impaled, is there any kind of phallic implication there? Whoa. <laughs> I mean, this might be too Freud-ish, but... <laughs> Moving on. Natural consequences. In, in Impaling was a common penalty in the ancient Near East. And I don't think it was sexual. I think it was through the heart. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like symbolically. Right? Symbolically. Oh, yeah. It is one of the more violent ways of killing people. But the other option is to have them stoned. And that was the popular one in Israel, was stoning. Yeah, that's, I, you know, I haven't studied that method of punishment, so I can't really contribute anything. <laughs> uh, the, the ancient Near East is vast. Yeah. I'm still exploring. I, I have uh, two things. Uh, one, it seems that um, it, um, because in verse 2 they're sacrificing to um, their gods and bowing down to them, that that's clearly idolatry. Then we have, um, we have sexual immorality and idolatry of God that seems to be um, equated here. Well, the prophets certainly make that equation. And, and actually, Paul makes an even stronger equation. Look at Romans 1. Um, since I believe in canonical criticism, we can do that. Uh, Romans 1. 
if you look at 18, God's wrath is revealed and he gives them up. Uh, but what the key is that verses 22, while claiming, well, let's start with 21. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God or thank him. Instead, their reasoning became pointless and their foolish hearts were darkened. While they were claiming to be wise, they made fools of themselves and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that looked like mortal birds, humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to their heart's desires, which led to the moral corruption of degrading their own bodies with each other. This is clearly sex, promiscuity. They traded God's truth for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creation instead of the Creator who is blessed forever. So as their minds became darkened, they came to see... And, and think about how we do this today. I, and I realize we have a different twist on the sexual scene. But think about the fact that sex is subjugation in our society. Uh, and I don't think it was that different. They may have different forms of doing it and different ways of doing it. But they, they had the same thing. Sex was subjugation. It was hierarchical. And because it was hierarchical, it was degrading. You're demeaning someone when you do sex in that way. And you're lifting yourself up if you're the one doing the demeaning as being superior and and all of those things. And, and when you think about the kind of sexual relationship God intended of bonding and mutuality and, and love and respect and, and care and all of the things that he intended to be part of the sex act. You can see what a violation it is of the character of God. And I think, I think that does undergird this. The little bit I've studied sexuality, and I haven't studied it extensively, but the little bit I've studied it, I've, I've felt that the, the minor voice on sex is found in Genesis 2.24, where it says, Wherefore shall man leave his father and mother, which is anti the house of the father. I, I think I've pointed that out to you before. It's anti the house of the father. It's anti-hierarchy. And be joined to his wife. That means something so tightly connected that you can't break it apart without acute pain. It's used of skin attached to the body. So if you flay someone without anesthesia, that is the equivalent psychologically and emotionally and morally to the person who gets flayed uh, if you break that apart. And then the one flesh, which is the consummation. So, so to me, that's the biblical model. And, and I think ancient promiscuity as now is a total distortion and abuse of that original model. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think that's good. So, having dealt with this story now, maybe we can deal with all the others quite easily. <laughs> We don't have much time, but let's, um, Judges 639, let's take a look at that. <laughs> now, this text isn't going to mean much to you, and it's going to be a real, huh, after what we've just looked at. 
But Gideon says to God, don't be angry with me. This is when he's doing the fleecing, right? Well, let me speak just one more time. Please let me make just one more test for the fleece. Now let the, only the fleece be dry and let the dew be on the ground. And God did so that night. Only the fleece was dry, but there was dew on the ground. What does that have to do? God, why he says, don't be angry with me. And my question is, does idolatry lead to seeing God as angry? And, and to get that, Look at page, uh, verse 1 of Judges 6. The Israelites did things that the Lord saw as evil, and the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Well, they, they went away from him, basically, and he let them go. Um, and so then he, he cried, they cry out to him because of Midian, and he sends them a prophet and says, um, you must not worship the God and the Amorites. And so they're worshiping the gods of the Amorites, apparently. So then the Lord's messenger came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, belonging to Joash the Ibizai, right? I'm on verse 11 now. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress, and the angels, Lord's angel appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And, and they have this discussion. But God says to you, take, verse 25, take your father's bull, and a second bull, seven years old, break down your father's altar to Baal. And cut up the Asherah that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God in the proper way on top of this high ground. Then take the second bull and offer it as an entirely burned offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. So they're worshiping Baal. Baal is a Canaanite god that has to do with kingly power. I mean, it is, he is, he is a dominating god. He rules over, he gained rulership by slaying Yom the sea. Uh, he is considered the god of kingship. So when you worship Baal, you're worshiping hierarchy. It's interesting that hierarchy was expressed in sacrificial terms in Canaanite culture um, by bulls in the sense that, not sacrificial uh, bulls, but bulls. The bull was the the, remember, they when the Israelites uh, made a god for them, they made a golden calf. That was the golden bull calf. Well, a bull was Ale's uh, representation. Ale was the high god. And there's some evidence, I believe, that it's also Baal's representation at times. So to sacrifice a bull is counter that whole... Uh, Business of ball worship. So my my question is back to verse thirty nine. Gideon's terribly afraid of angering God, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because he's been worshiping ball. He's been worshiping gods who get angry. And and let me tell you, I've been struggling to find evidence for that in Canaanite religion. So this is a tentative comment that I'm making. But most false gods in the ancient Near East had a tendency to be fierce, if not angry and enraged. So it seems to me that idol worship breeds this perception that God is angry. And if we read that back into Numbers, that's another reason why God appears to be angry. They're, They're worshiping angry gods. Our time is up. 
But I think we'll probably make faster time. My goal is still to get through this by the end of this quarter. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, I posted it on Facebook. If you look at my uh, status or my timeline, you'll find it. But it is God's character without an apostrophe dot com. Okay. It's also gnag.org. Okay. Okay. Uh, why don't we have prayer, closing prayer, and then we can leave. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have helped us this morning to grapple with a very difficult story in order to see why you would why it would be worded the way it is why it would be explained the way it is pray that you will give us uh clear understandings in, in the future as we tackle some of these more difficult passages and we thank you in Jesus name amen, amen.